0: This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Every episode, we bring you authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. My name is Georgia Sparling, and today we've got an interview with authors A.J. Verdell and Jane Brox, who are both faculty in our MFA program. AJ is the author of The Good Negress and recently published Miss Chloe, A Literary Friendship with Toni Morrison. Jane Brox is the author of several works of nonfiction, including Silence, a social history of one of the least understood elements of our lives. You may notice that the audio sounds different in this episode, and that's because it was recorded before a live studio audience at our summer residency, and it does include a Q&A at the end.
1: Would you talk a little bit about how you constructed the book itself or the structure? Sure.
2: Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I don't have a lot of boundaries when I'm drafting and I think that contributes to making unusual connections. Um, Morris and I did share an, an experience as African-Americans that I think was really foundational for our relationship. And so Although in the beginning, I thought I was writing a little gift book that would sort of replicate what she taught me. Um, My editor kept saying, you need more of you in this book. And I was like, well, nobody's really interested in me. And she was like, well, I don't know that that's true, but people want to know why Morrison was interested in you. So explain who you are. So I then began to look at the ways in which she and I talked about things that we just were like, girl, please. You know, we both understood. We we both understood. Like one of my earliest memories in this book is of going to a playground that my grandmother took us to that was all the way across town. I was like seven years old and I had on white socks that had lace on them. And my memory is being on the swing and looking at my beautiful white socks with my little kids like Lauren has on little kid shoes with the tips. And it was just like my shoes in the sky, my shoes in the sky. And it's an early memory. It's a wonderful memory. And then later I realized, oh my God, that was a segregated playground. That was a brand new segregated playground that they made for the black kids. And like, I'm feeling free and I'm loving my socks, but it's like a segregated playground. So Morrison and I, you know, we had that whole experience of segregation and we understood that and we understood that there was some power in it because at least we were a little bit protected. Like a white person was weird looking if they came into a segregated neighborhood. So you were a little bit protected from like random violence. Right. Well, fast forward, we're having in this celebratory event for Morrison, sponsored by some organization. And they came and got me to sort of manage Morrison to make sure she came up to the stage, to make sure nobody bugged her, to make sure, you know, just please manage Morrison. So I was there and I had on a very expensive, beautiful designer dress, Kevin Simon, big, like custom buttons down the bottom. I had these cute shoes and I had found these beautiful lace socks that reminded me of my freedom thing, right? So I'm in the line, you know, trying to manage Morrison, leading her down the aisle. And she's like, why do you have on socks? (laughs) And I'm like, I like them. Aren't they cute? And she's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, you're not, you're grown. You're not supposed to be wearing socks. And I'm like, really, really? We're going to talk about my socks? Really? Me and you? We're going to have a conversation about. And so she was like, so I say in the book that Morrison and I had two and a half spats. The sock thing was one of them, um, so the socks, the segregation, the argument they they do start to sort of tie together just based on this disordered way I write and the need the desperate need to put it back together
1: It felt like very deliberate the sequencing oftentimes, and it felt it felt like you they were all interlocking. That's why I thought about it as a quilt. Well, but it also, I want to say it also, uh, um, you know, you talk about the black book with the Toni Morrison edited and you talk about how um, she leaves a lot to the reader to um, make the, you know, she, she gives the reader a lot of credit. Right. And I think that's sort of what the effect is also.
2: Yes. Like so one of the women who interviewed me said, I like that this book has flow. Like, She said, it's great that you don't go, our friendship in the beginning started this year and it was like this, and then it developed and you sort of have this um, chronological approach to the relationship and the emotional chronology, as you know, because I tell you all the time, the emotional chronology is what's true, right? January, July makes no difference. He was my boyfriend and now he's not. That's the way that works, right? So, our emotional chronology is what drives us. And it is a challenge to learn to write, but that is primary, but it's mm-hmm. worth it. But,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, you know, you talk about um, your friendship lasting a third of your life. And, um, you know, what struck me in the book is that, um, you know, Toni Morrison, towering, towering figure, you're a beginning writer. But it seemed to me like she demanded the same thing of you in the beginning and the end. And and But your life had changed and all it's, you know, you had a daughter to raise. She was asking you, why don't you publish? Why don't you publish? Why don't you publish? And you are are kind of having trouble coming back with an answer for her. I mean, do you want to talk about the uh, the complexities of the mentor relationship when the mentor relationship lasts so long? Because most don't. Right, right.
2: Yeah. You kind of graduate from your mentors usually.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: But you know, there's no graduating from Morrison. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she was just really. She was very brief all the time and very you know, cursory and just very brilliant. If she was getting ready to really slam you, she would warn you by saying, I don't mean to be churlish and you better like get back.
1: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. There was no, there was no way to really stop it.
0: You know, mm-hmm. it
2: was just going on and she was, brilliant. And I was, I don't know who I was. And we got to a place What Jane is referencing. We got to a place, I don't know, 15, 17 years in where I called him one afternoon and she's like screaming at me on the phone. And I was like, "Miss Chloe, are you on the speakerphone? She's like, yes, but, you know, and she's like yelling at me about not publishing. And I just realized while I was on the phone that I'm like, I, I do not have the capacity to tolerate Tony Morrison yelling at me i I apologize to the world, so after I got off the phone, i didn't call her back for seven years and the way our relationship was constructed, she was responsible for the dates, like if we did anything it was her idea. She would set it up. She would say which of her many houses we would be at or whatever. I never invited her to my house. And I talk about that because my feeling was, can she even fit through the door to my Mm -hmm. house? It's like my door is too small. So I just, I I just, so I would make all the phone calls and she would make all the dates. And so since I made all the phone calls when I didn't call her back after she was yelling at me, we didn't talk. Mm -hmm. But then uh, I went to the Center for Fiction dinner, which was maybe three or four years before she graduated. I mean, sorry, before she ascended. I don't know, before she transitioned, before she passed. And um, the lady came to the microphone saying Morrison wasn't coming, but she made it sound like Morrison was dead. And I was like, oh, fuck! but it turned out she wasn't dead. And so then I wasn't able to sleep the whole night. But I waited until the time I normally called her and I called her the next day and she said, you know, my sister died Mm -hmm. and she just went on as if I had called her two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So I had a, what I call a coda the last 18 months of her life. We talked as if we were still talking. Um, But for those seven years, I wasn't calling because she was really upset that I wasn't publishing and there wasn't much I felt like I could do about that.
1: Right. Right. So. right. I mean, that, that to me was an interesting turn because, you know, you, you, every writer becomes the writer they can be. Mm-hmm. And then, but then there's the, you know, you're so different as a, a writer 20, 30 years in than you were at the beginning. Your ambitions have to be different because they have to adjust to your life, whatever, however life takes you. Right. But then there's this person in your life that expects you to be consistently the person that they knew when you first right. met. or
2: that they had chosen for some reason. I mean, yeah. in the yeah. book I talk yeah. about, this is the weirdest kind of chosen. Like, yeah. why in the world am I sitting in front of Tony Morrison?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: But um, I think she expected, you know, a certain, she really wanted me to publish my cowboy book. But anyway, um, you still learn, you yeah. know. yeah. And I learned a ton from her. And as I was writing this book, I was very apprehensive. I was like, should I really be doing this? Do I have enough to say? And then one day I'm sitting there like ambivalent and I hear this husky voice. How many times do I have to reach for you? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, okay, Mm -hmm. okay.
1: Yeah. I do remember when you were first reading from this, I don't know, a few years at, at a at a real residency before COVID, you know, you referred to it as a monograph, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it did evolve from that. The idea of it evolved from, yes. from that over time. Yes. And yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the revision process before we well, you audience? know, revision is big.
2: <laughs> <laughs> revision is what it's all about. Um, the thing about this book is you can hear the real re in it because I, like I said, I thought it was going to be a small gift book. I thought it was, I was aiming for like a hundred pages and I was aiming to consolidate what she had taught me that helped me write. And I kind of saw it, I don't know, like, I don't know. I saw it as a gifty thing and it just is extremely different from that at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like um intertwined autobiography intertwined biography i'm autobiography she's biography and this is not a book that i think she would have loved for me to write <laughs> i think she once wanted me to be writing fiction fiction is harder because truth actually happens so you have material right mm-hmm. fiction you have no material fiction and and she believed in the primacy of fiction so mm-hmm. the revision process was as it always is for me. It's from, you start again from zero. It's just that you have something to work with. And I think the book is really a whole lot better mm-hmm. because of how many changes it went through, how much processing, reorganizing, emotional chronology, that kind of thing. So I, I think she would like the way it turned out.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. But she would have maybe been a little insufferable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
1: Should we turn to the audience for questions at this point? Maybe anybody have any questions
0: just popping in here because the audience member for the first question wasn't miked. They asked about AJ's cowboy book, which is a work of fiction that is still in progress.
2: Okay. So (laughs) the cowboy story needs to, um, come to where I am now, as Jane is saying, you you change a lot as a writer. And so uh, one of my former students sent me the version that she thought was best, which is the version from 2009. She, She calls it the version before they started making you change the Black people. So before 2009, all the suggestions were about the white characters in the cowboy book, which I kind of accepted because I figured, what do I know about being white, right? Nothing. So I would make these adjustments, but then they started saying, well, the cowboy needs to be this. And, you know, my cowboy is a black American man, former slave, whole thing. Um, and those changes turned out to be disastrous. So that is when I stopped working. Anyway, I got a fellowship to the Schomburg For this fall, I'm taking a sabbatical. Yay. Um, Thank you. And I only have the fellowship because of this. No one cares about you until you have. Right? So anyway, they have archives at this they they have jimmy baldwin's archives which i'm gonna have my head in mm-hmm. but they also have these archives of this black businessman in the Wyoming territory so I'm hoping to sort of refresh the novel with like this black business theme which is already there and and I think that I'll be able to turn it around this year.
1: Thank you AJ for sharing everything about Your book. I can't wait to read it. But you know, you say that um, perhaps Miss Chloe would not have been happy about you writing this book at first. But my question is as a mentor, you talk briefly about how she put you in these positions or how she felt she was putting you into these positions. You're meeting all these people, all these wonderful things that most people never get to experience. Don't you think that she's looking at you now and she, and you are exactly where you're supposed to be that you brought out exactly what she was trying to get you to do. What do you think Um, about that?
2: I think that she would want me to be publishing fiction. (laughs) Um, I think that she thought fiction was sort of masterwork and that she was really, really invested in the imagination. And I think that one of the reasons that she liked me was because I wasn't afraid of the imagination. I could sit and be imaginative with her you know we would l- make lots of plans that i think we both understood were never going to happen but we were caught up in, in mm-hmm. we were caught up in imagining what this experience would be like if we actually built it so we had a lot of really sort of play acting kinds of conversations. Um, so I'm very accustomed to her voice. I'm very accustomed to her commenting on what I'm saying or what I'm doing. And so, yes, I think that this the what I describe of if you're going to write Toni Morrison, you really better write. So I worked extremely hard on the sentences and the vocabulary in this book. And I think that you're correct. She would be thrilled about that. But I don't think that this is the kind of book that she would have applauded. She just would have been like, get it right. (laughs) But what she would applaud is where you really start with nothing, no truth, no chronology, no plan. And you make something that people can experience and learn from and understand a reality that they wouldn't otherwise
3: engage with. We do have a question from the chat um, directed at Jane, but I think either of you could uh, could sort of answer this. Um, It says, how much uh, do you allow your research to with parentheses around the re redirect so direct or redirect you as you write uh, in the interaction between what you learn from history and your own lived experience uh what dominates is that for you Uh, it was it was originally intended for jane
1: it's an it's an um, ongoing conversation and a moving frontier. And I would say for this material, I knew nothing about single women. I, I knew nothing about the history of single I, I constantly surprised. I had no idea that there were 200,000 single women homesteaders who took advantage of um, the Homestead Act and went out and settled on the plains and in the Rocky Mountains and what their experience was like. I had no idea. So, of course, all that research is only going to change how I think about my own home and my own life and, and that vantage point. And somehow, and I just have to recal keep recalibrating, keep, keep recalibrating, keep recalibrating. And, you know, it, I mean, the trick is, I guess, is to know when you come to the end of the research take off.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, Morrison said, and I think Rachel, is Rachel in here? Um, yeah. Um, Rachel sort of learned this studying with Morrison that you want to research, but you want to choose the humanizing part of the research. You want to choose things that can help turn your characters or your understanding of how people live into a more robust human experience. So that you have to figure out ways to sort of shave the research down or end it, or be more selective about it. Right. And, when you're writing fiction, what you're looking for is you know what makes this person seem like a mom or what informs the choices that this person is making. So you use the research for that to help humanize them rather than looking only to contextualize, which can really weigh your fiction now.:
1: You mentioned emo- emotional chronology for nonfiction, but I was wondering if there's a way that that applies to fiction as well. Um, to kind of know where to begin a story?
2: Yeah, I actually think it applies more to fiction than it does to nonfiction. I think that uh, Jane's idea about the quiltiness of this and the uh, other person's comment about flow, right? I think it's unusual in nonfiction to not have sort of some kind of concrete anchor, whether it's place or uh, time, and so this nonfiction is kind of going all over the place by subject, socks, segregation, swings, you know, aloneness versus crowds, all that kind of thing. But in fiction, the emotional chronology is can, can, can be driving, right? Like if you start with an inciting incident, well, the emotional temperature is high. And then what connects to that? How do you get down off of that sort of feverish inciting incident? It usually is not really related to the inciting incident, right? You go back to something that soothed you in the past, or you think about somebody who's not there who might be able to help you, or you go to somebody and tell them three weeks later. Well, in fiction, all of those events would come right after the inciting incident. So the idea to sort of train yourself to think what emotionally is connected to what else emotionally. And then you put those things together in terms of your scenes. And then you look, what do I need to add to connect these, right? So the inciting incident is somebody got beat up at school. And then you double, double space down When my brother was here, before he went in the service, he would have gone there and taken care of this for me. But since he's not here, and then your action divides, well, what does she do? Does she write him a letter? Does she tell her father instead? Does she remember the last time he protected her? That's an emotional chronology. It's a very gentle experience figuring out what a emotional chronology is. And it's one of the most soothing aspects of writing actually for me to say the, this emotional trajectory is valid. Now, how do I show it? I would almost say though, emotional chronology is more effective and more necessary to fiction.
3: We've got one from the uh, comment from the chat. I will do my best to, uh, to translate text into uh in, into the emotion that i think this person's going for it's from anita Gale jones comment for aj yes morrison would want you to be publishing fiction that said i feel strongly that your beautiful praise song to her is the book you were meant to write it is the mark on quote pa- oh sorry on the quote path of the infinite uh hey, little gibran um that you and only you could write at this point and now Onto the Cowboy book. <laughs>
1: hey, Jay. So um, you were talking about um, how when you... So this is a bad process. And you were talking before about when you're doing a draft, you don't worry about anything. You don't worry about spaces. You don't worry about punctuation. I mean, I find this fascinating because that would drive me absolutely bananas. Um, but then you were talking about you know, then how do you get out of that? Right? Because at some point you need to have spaces and you need to have punctuation. Do you, are you always in partnership with a reader then who can help you parse that out? Do you, at what point does a blob of words start becoming
2: a story? Quite honestly, in the early drafting phase, I'm looking to the blob of words to help me figure out the story. So, for example, the sock thing, which I keep coming back to because I forget what I was doing. I was starting the, t- the presentation for this and my mom was like, you're not wearing socks, are you? And I'm like, really, mom, we're going to talk about socks? And she's like, even Toni Morrison said you shouldn't wear socks. So like I'm doing this thing round and round, but the socks are significant. For me, because of the segregated playground, and it's amazing to me that the thing that is associated with the segregated playground, in spite of my feeling of youth and freedom, is a thing that she and I end up fighting about, and that my mother is also willing to fight about because it's their era. They're the same age, right? And they think you're supposed to be suffering in girdles and hose. And so these are only things I can discover because I have the blobs, right? I think that, I, I think I'm certainly able to write in a linear fashion, but it is so boring. It's just so, and it's not, it's not that for everybody. It's just, for me, when I try to, I feel, I feel oppressed by Julius Caesar, you know? I mean, like the, the September stands for seven, October stands for eight, November stands for nine, December stands for 10, but Julius and Augustus Caesar, they want to be in the calendar. So they became July and August and they pushed all the numbers to the wrong spaces. And so when I'm trying to like write chronologically, I feel like, why don't I just get up and bow to Julius Caesar? I mean, what does this chronology have to do with me? It has nothing to do with me, nothing, right? What matters is what has happened in my life. And so let me just get down what I'm thinking about and then put it in order. I am not always in partnership. Like the good negress, I did, did it sort of by myself, but because this was true and because there was a pandemic and because it was Morrison and I was, even though she was gone, I was still kind of like, (laughs) you think it's okay, you know, whatever, um, it was very helpful to I just sent the manuscript to Lauren because I was about to quit. I was like, this is a dumb project. I'm a fiction writer. I, You know, whatever. They can have their money back. And anyway, I didn't have to give the money back. It, do, it is bananas making, though. <laughs> it is. It's terrible. I wrote The Good Negress, though, without punctuation. And that made it a lot easier because columns and and uh, not columns, commas, commas and periods and semicolons. Those are easy to insert, and so it made for some very vibrant sentences that I don't think I would have thought of otherwise. But this was really much more moments that I was trying to connect, and and that's a that's harder than punctuation, and it is crazy making. But I I think. I think that imaginative work needs a little crazy.
1: i just like to say it's a mess until it's not a mess. That's, that's right. All like that's what it is.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: So um, I was in your class today and you mentioned about vents Are you got to cut them with a knife. And you also mentioned about things you had to leave out. How did you just go? I mean, you must've had zillions of experiences and ideas and of situations with, or how did you really do that process to discern what to put in and what to usually out? We
2: refer to this as excising, like taking things out of your manuscript to make it tighter and more coherent. And usually there are rules for that, right? Like Jane is talking about the manuscript being weighed down by the research, right? We tend to have rules for what we want to keep. So for example, there are a couple things that were just too intimate for me to put in a book. I would feel like Morrison would come back and like beat me with a broom or something (laughs) for saying things that she only said to me. Right. And you know, the kind of things where if you hear it again, you know, exactly where it came from because you only said it to like one or two people. So those kinds of things, that's a rule. It's too intimate. Right. Um, there are a couple of things where it would have just made her, you know, she had a reputation for being terse and cutting in the, in the book. I talk about the first time I ever saw her. And she basically, a woman was way, way back at a microphone in an audience of 800 people. And the woman asked a problematic question and Morrison basically read her for like, Ugh. you just wanted the earth to open up and swallow the poor lady. Um, So I do tell that story, but there are other stories that would make her seem meaner than she already seemed. And what, what you find out when you go talk to people about Morrison is that most people are like, oh, my God, she was mean as a snake, which she wasn't. She wasn't, but when she, she was so brilliant when she spoke and she spoke. So, so anyway, I really did want this to be a praise song. I felt like I thought when I started the book, I thought I'm, I'm grieving, but the more I wrote, the more I, I sort of got giddy. I was like, who the hell has this experience? You know, like, (laughs) how can I be sad? What is there to be sad about? Right. So. The process really made me feel elevated, revisiting all those experiences. And I was actually kind of freaked out about how they came to me because everything I remembered came without sound. It was almost like I couldn't hear her voice. Now, I remember the things she said, but in the memory, she would just be standing there or just refusing to talk, which was kind of interesting. But um, usually for excising, you have reason and rules and it becomes easy to sort of follow those rules. Okay. Well, thank you everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to our conversation with AJ Burdell and Jane Brox. If you'd like to learn more about AJ's book, Miss Chloe, check out the show notes where we've got a link to more information about AJ. You'll also find our podcast episode with Jane Brocks and more information about our MFA program, where there are always amazing conversations with contemporary authors, just like this one. Before you go, we'd so appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to now. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in your feed soon.